On Saturday night, Samantha Bee hosted the much ballyhooed Not the White House Correspondents' Dinner. The dinner was retitled, of course, because President Trump wasn't enough of a rube to subject himself to three hours of barbs and put-downs by leftists who didn't vote for him and see him as a joke and disdain his voters. At the dinner, Bee trotted out in a white pantsuit looking like Kristen Chenoweth playing Hillary Clinton in an alternative reality version of the 2016 election. Your job has never been harder, she gushed to the assembled members of the self-pleasuring press. You expose injustice against the weak. You continue to fact-check the president as if he might someday get embarrassed. Tonight is for you. Shortly after this ode to the bravery of journalists who maintained total silence for eight years of President Barack Obama's lies on Iran and health care, his Department of Justice targeting the Associated Press and Fox News, Bee appeared on CNN with Jake Tapper. There, she explained, of her nearly unwatchable mess of a show, Full Frontal, quote, I do the show for me and for people like me, and I don't care how the rest of the world sees it, frankly. We birth it, and then the world receives it however they want to receive it. During the entirety of this statement, a smug grin was plastered across her face. Here is a basic rule of thumb. In order to be smug, you generally have to be unaware of your smugness. B fits the bill. So do the members of the White House press corps. There's plenty of questions. There are plenty of questions about President Trump's administration, from his shifting promises to his knee-jerk reversals, from his policy vagaries to his staffing chaos. But instead of approaching the American people as potential friends to be convinced, smug leftists treat them as ignoramuses. There's no sincerity involved. Every critique of Trump supporters lumps them all together and then treats them as gum stuck to the bottom of the shoe of the republic. Samantha Bee and company have the unmistakable air of the bullies from every high school and college comedy, preening self-obsessed rich kids who sneer at the losers who inhabit the hallways and plan pool parties and taunt the poor kids who can't afford anything better than a beat-up pinto. The journalist Hollywood clique is like Greg Marmalard from Animal House, Rod from Breaking Away, Regina George from Mean Girls. They're smug, they're liberal, and that's what drives Trump's support. Trump knows this. That's why he skipped the correspondence dinner and instead went to Pennsylvania, where he held a rally, hilariously declaring, quote, A large group of Hollywood actors in Washington media are consoling each other in a hotel ballroom in our nation's capital right now. It was the best moment for Trump since his speech to a joint session of Congress. Trump may not be popular among the cool kids, but he's cool enough among them to win supporters in the swing states. If the cool kids don't cut it out, they'll get eight years to mock him and be smug in their self-assurance that they know what the American people want better than the American people do. I'm Ben Shapiro. This is The Ben Shapiro Show. Alrighty, so James Comey is on the Hill again. This guy just won't go away. The FBI director is back on the Hill now answering questions about the election cycle. Hillary Clinton is back, too. The 2016 election cycle will never end. So if you loved it, congratulations. It's 2017, The Revenge. We'll get to all of that in just a second. But first, I want to say thank you to our sponsors over at LegacyBox.com. So one of the big things that I talk about all the time is preserving your memories. Obviously, as you get older, those memories go into a box. They go in the garage, and there's nothing much that you can do with them anymore unless you go to LegacyBox.com. What you do is you take all those old photos, you take all of that old video, all those old films, the stuff that your grandma left you, and you put it in a box and you send it to Legacy Box, and they send you back everything on a DVD or a thumb drive so that you can use it and watch it and share it and relive it. It's a fantastic service. It's something I think is deeply important because as those memories disappear, you're losing a part of yourself. Legacy Box prevents that from happening. So instead of your home movies just being stacked up in a closet somewhere, now you can actually look at them anytime you want because they're easy and convenient. You don't have to schlep boxes of crap out of your house if there's a fire. LegacyBox.com takes care of, uh, they take care of everything. They provide updates at every step of the process. That's why 250,000 families have used them. So right now, if you go to LegacyBox.com slash Ben, you get a 40% discount on your order. LegacyBox.com slash Ben. Fantastic service. Again, send all of your stuff to them. They send it back on tape. They 
put a barcode on every piece of, of material that you send to them so you can track where it is in the process. Just a great company. Legacybox.com slash Ben. Go ahead, check it out. 40% discount on your order. Okay, so the big news today is that James Comey is on the Hill. Now, as the precursor to this, I think we have to talk about Hillary Clinton's reappearance on the public scene. So Hillary is back, and this is a great thing for Republicans because particularly it's great for Trump. I'm not sure it's so great for Republicans as much as it's great for Trump. The reason I say it's great for Trump is because the less Trump does in office, the more important it is to talk about how terrible Hillary Clinton is because, again, you need to show, you need to throw Trump in relief. If your basis for Trump doing a good job is he's not Hillary, then Hillary needs to be ever-present in our mind. We need to constantly remember how terrible Hillary is, and then we think, oh, God, at least it's not Hillary Clinton. Trump must be doing a fantastic job. So that's why Hillary being part of the public scene is really, really good for Trump. So Hillary came back yesterday, and she was doing uh, a media appearance with Christiane Amanpour, who is just unwatchable and unlistenable. And in this media in this media appearance, she said that she takes full responsibility, and then proceeds to blame everybody, up to and including James Comey, James Comey the uh, the head of the FBI. Did we make mistakes? Of course we did. Did I make mistakes? Oh my gosh, yes. You know, you'll read my confession and my <laughs> my request for absolution. But the reason why I believe we lost were the intervening events in the last 10 days. Okay, so basically I take full responsibility, except I take none of the responsibility. None of it was my fault. Now, was it her fault? Yes, the whole thing is her fault. The entire email controversy is her fault. If she weren't a paranoid nutso, she wouldn't have stuck all of this classified information on an email server that was, that was private and not under government auspices uh, and might have been hacked. And she certainly would not have allowed Huma Abedin to apparently send classified information to her husband's computer. Huma Abedin, of course, was her assistant. Uh, uh-huh. And uh, she was sending emails to the computer of Anthony Weiner, uh, Huma Abedin's husband. Anthony Weiner, of course, is a is a alleged child pornographer, uh, or at least looking at child pornography or young teenagers. Uh, he's a really sick guy who has a bunch of problems, does Anthony Weiner. Uh, and his computer was apparently filled with classified material and messages from Hillary Clinton, including emails that Hillary Clinton had deleted before turning them over to the appropriate intelligence authorities. So, as you recall, on October 28th, just a few days before the election, 11 days before the election, James James Comey sends an email, sends a letter to the members of Congress updating them on the status of the investigation. If you recall all the way back to July, in July he says, we've done a full investigation of Hillary's email server, and while she's a criminal, she is not a criminal, and we should not prosecute her. That was basically Comey's announcement back in July. Now it comes to 11 days before the election, and James Comey sends a letter to Congress telling them, we haven't reopened the email investigation per se, but we have new information in the email investigation, uh, and Anthony Weiner's computer is filled chock full to the top with a bunch of Hillary Clinton emails. We haven't had time to go through it yet. Now, this was pretty controversial because just a few days later, he comes out and he says, we went through all of it, nothing there of importance. So Democrats, I think, not wrongly, are very miffed by this. They say, okay, why are you updating Congress if you haven't even checked it out? You don't know if it's real yet. And then five days, six days, seven days later... You come out and you say, oh, oops, by the way, I'm glad I updated you eight days ago, but it turns out that none of it actually mattered. So back to my original statement, nothing bad happened here. If you were a Democrat, you'd be mad, too. If you're a Republican, obviously you're happy because, of course, it had an impact on Trump getting elected. It's still Hillary's fault. She shouldn't have engaged in all sorts of nefarious activity here. She should have been more careful with classified information. She shouldn't have planned to have a server and then put classified material on it, which is a purposeful exposure of America to to foreign intelligence services. She should never have done any of those things. So it's Hillary's fault. But 
Did Comey's letter have an impact? I think it would be hard to argue Comey's letter didn't have an impact. You see the polls. She dropped from outside the margin of error to inside the margin of error in the last few days of the election cycle. Hard to tell how much of that would have happened normally, but it's hard to imagine that the biggest story in America didn't have any impact on her electability. In any case, James Comey is testifying before Congress, and Dianne Feinstein, senator from California, she of the knifely size, she decides that she's going to ask him about why he sent that famous October 28th letter, and here is James Comey's answer. The investigative team that had finished the investigation in July, focused on Secretary Clinton's emails, asked to meet with me. So I met with them that morning, late morning, in my conference room, and they laid out for me what they could see from the metadata on this fella Anthony Weiner's laptop that had been seized in an unrelated case. What they could see from the metadata was that there were thousands of Secretary Clinton's emails on that device, including what they thought might be the missing emails from her first three months as Secretary of State. We never found any emails from her first three months. She was using a Verizon Blackberry then, and that's obviously very important because it, if there was evidence that she was acting with bad intent, that's where it would be in the but first three months. But they weren't there. Look, can I just finish my answer, Senator? Yeah. And so they came in and said, we can see thousands of emails from the Clinton email domain, including many, many, many from the Verizon Clinton domain, BlackBerry domain. They said, we think we got to get a search warrant to go get these. And the Department of Justice agreed we had to go get a search warrant. So I agreed. I authorized them to seek a search warrant. And then I faced a choice. And I've lived my entire career by the tradition that if you can possibly avoid it, you avoid any action in the run-up to an election that might have an impact, whether it's a dog catcher election or president of the United States. But I sat there that morning, and I could not see a door labeled no action here. I could see two doors and they were both actions. One was labeled speak, the other was labeled conceal. Because here's how I thought about it. I'm not trying to talk you into this, but I want you to know my thinking. Having repeatedly told this Congress, we are done and there's nothing there. There's no case there. There's no case there. To restart in a hugely significant way, potentially finding the emails that would reflect on her intent from the beginning and not speak about it would require an act of concealment, in my view. And so I stared at speak and conceal. Speak would be really bad. There's an election in 11 days. Lordy, that would be really bad. Concealing, in my view, would be catastrophic not just to the FBI, but well beyond. And honestly, as between really bad and catastrophic, I said to my team, we've got to walk into the world of really bad. I've got to tell Congress that we're restarting this, not in some frivolous way, in a hugely significant way. And the team also told me, we cannot finish this work before the election. And then they worked night after night after night, and they found thousands of new emails. They found classified information on Anthony Weiner, Somehow, her emails are being forwarded to Anthony Weiner, including classified information by her assistant, Huma Abedin. And so they found thousands of new emails and then called me the Saturday night before the election and said, thanks to the wizardry of our technology, we've only had to personally read 6,000. We think we can finish tomorrow morning, Sunday. And so I met with them. And they said, we found a lot of new stuff. We did not find anything that changes our view of her intent. So we're in the same place we were in July. It hasn't changed our view. And I asked them lots of questions. And I said, OK, if that's where you are, then I also have to tell Congress that we're done. Look, this was terrible. It makes me mildly nauseous to think that we might have had some impact on the election. But honestly, it wouldn't change the decision. Everybody who disagrees with me has to come back to October 28th with me and stare at this and tell me what you would do. Would you speak or would you conceal? So we can stop it here. So I'm about to say something deeply unpopular. 
James Comey is totally, utterly, completely full of crap. Okay, he's totally full of crap. I know there are people on the right saying this is super convincing. This is his logic. This is why he did it. He's an honest man. Okay, James Comey is totally full of crap. He was full of crap in July. He was full of crap in October. And he's full of crap now. I will explain why. Okay, beginning in July, he was full of crap because he never should have announced all the reasons to indict Hillary Clinton and then made up his own legal standard. And he did. You, you talked about it at the time. He literally made up his own legal standard. There is no standard of intent in the law with regard to concealment and hiding and redirection of classified material. There is no intent requirement. He made up that standard out of whole cloth to exonerate Hillary Clinton. And Donald Trump, I mean, this is so bizarre now because this is the world we live in. Trump tweeted that yesterday. He tweeted yesterday that James Comey gave Hillary a free pass. Okay, well, you reappointed him to head of the FBI, dude. Like you said, you weren't going to fire him. So that's kind of weird. But in July, he was totally full of crap. Then, because he set this wrong legal standard, he then goes forward to October. And now it turns out that there's all sorts of new material. So he has two choices. He can shut the hell up until all the information is available to him, until he completes the investigation without regard for politics, or he can announce it to make up for his boo-boo, right? It's a makeup call. July was a boo-boo, and now he's got a makeup call in October. Here's the makeup call. Republicans have a field day. And he sends out this letter. And he openly said this at the time, like this new logic that he's saying, where he's saying, well, you know, I really felt the obligation to say anything, say something because it was either speak or conceal, and I didn't want to politicize this thing. He says that he, he at one point in this testimony, he actually says that somebody in his office said, you know, you're going to get Trump elected if you do this. And he said, well, I can't think about things like that. Well, clearly he was thinking about things like that back in July, and he was thinking like that about things like that in October because literally five seconds later, he says, in that same testimony, he says, we expedited the review. Well, if you weren't worried about the, poli- the politics of the situation, why are you expediting the review? Right? If all you're worried about is the truth coming out in good time, then number one, why are you announcing preliminary findings before you've even done the research? And two, why aren't you waiting until all the research is done? And three, why are you expediting the research so that it gets done before the election cycle? And four, why are you sending this letter that you sent to the FBI the same day that you sent the letter to Congress? Quote, of course we don't ordinarily tell Congress about ongoing investigations, but here I feel an obligation to do so, given that I testified repeatedly in recent months that our investigation was completed. I also think it would be misleading to the American people were we not to supplement the record. At the same time, however, given we don't know the significance of this newly discovered collection of emails, I don't want to create a misleading impression. In trying to strike that balance in a brief letter and in the middle of an election season, there is significant risk of being misunderstood, but I wanted you to hear directly from me about it. Yes, there is politics here, but the only politics that mattered to James Comey was not the politics of Trump versus Clinton. The only politics that mattered to James Comey was preserving his patina of legitimacy at the FBI and creating this perception that the FBI was above politics when, in fact, by doing all of this, he embroiled the FBI in more and more and more politics. That's what actually happened here. Okay, that's what actually happened here with James Comey. James Comey hedged his bet so he could keep his job. He started in July exonerating Hillary where she should not have been exonerated. Then, to hedge his bets in October, he brought forward this information, and then he killed his own information like eight days later after this whole thing went down. And that's the honest take on James Comey. And what you're going to hear today from the partisans on both sides is the left is going to say, James Comey is totally evil and wanted Trump to win. And on the right, you're going to hear, James Comey is wonderful. He's a saint. Of course he had to reveal this information. Here is the basic truth. It's Hillary's fault she lost. It's James Comey's fault that we all know about any of this stuff in the first place because James Comey did not do the first thing FBI directors are told to do. Shut your mouth until you have all the information. Okay, and here is the reality of the situation. Would I prefer that the information came out and Hillary did not get elected? Of course. Of course. Is James Comey simultaneously full of crap? Absolutely, James Comey is simultaneously full of crap. 
Okay, now I want to talk, uh, I want to say thank you to our advertisers over at Tracker, and then I want to talk a little bit more about Hillary's grand return. Uh, so, Tracker.com, thetracker.com, T-A-R-T-R-A, rather, T-R-A-C-K-R.com, no E, thetracker.com, and use promo code Ben, and here's what the tracker does. If you lose your stuff, if you lose your phone, if you lose your keys, if you lose your wallet, you stick this coin-sized device on your phone, on your keys, on your wallet, uh, and it allows you to find those things. You use your cell phone to locate your keys. You, 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 it, it rings, basically, from your cell phone to your keys and to your wallet, and that ensures that you never lose these things again. And if you want not to lose your phone, then you can actually use your keys as a reverse tracking device. You take the device, and then you can actually reverse it back to your phone, and it'll ring through. So how often do you lose your phone, and your phone is on silent, and you can't find it? The tracker allows you to actually override the no-ring device. It, it allows you to override this. It's been a godsend for me. I'm constantly a guy running out the door and looking for wallet phone keys and losing one of them. And this makes it possible. The tracker makes it possible for that not to happen for me. I don't have to spend 15 minutes looking for my stuff anymore. TheTracker.com. And use promo code Ben. You get a free tracker Bravo with any purchase. So you never have to worry about losing that stuff ever again. Find its location with a tap of button. TheTracker.com. Promo code Ben. It's a device that my wife uses. As I've said before, it saved our marriage because there's nothing that annoys both of us more than when we lose our objects and then we have to bother the spouse about it. TheTracker.com, promo code Ben. Get a free tracker, Bravo, with any purchase. Okay, so Hillary Clinton can't accept the fact that James Comey screwed things up, but she really can't accept the fact that she's the one who screwed things up, right? She can't deal with the fact that she's the one who blew it. Uh, And so she is still not taking responsibility. Instead, she's claiming that it's because of Americans being sexists or some such nonsense. Do you think... Were you a victim of misogyny? And why do you think you lost the majority of the white female vote? The security moms, the people who want to be protected from the kinds of challenges you're talking about right, right now. Right, well, you know, that the book's coming out in the fall. Um, so, but we're just, to, just, to give you, just to give you a tiny little preview, uh, yes, I do think it played a role. I think other things did as well. Every day that goes by, we learn more about uh, some of the... Uh, unprecedented interference, including from a foreign power whose leader uh, is not a member of my fan club. And so I think it is a, it is real. It is uh, very much a part of the um, landscape politically. Okay, so it's obviously because we don't like women. Now, this ignores the fact, I do love this, this is one of my favorite things of the election cycle, somebody actually took the Clinton-Trump debate and they reversed the sexist. They had a woman read Trump's comments and then a man read Hillary's comments, and it turns out people liked Hillary even less when she was a man. So, So the idea that people just didn't vote for her because she's a woman is, of course, crap, but she now declares herself part of the resistance. She's gonna help stop Donald Trump. I spent decades learning about what it would take to move our country forward, including people who, you know, clearly didn't vote for me, uh, to try to make sure that we dealt with a lot of these hard issues that are right around the corner, like robotics and artificial intelligence and things that are really going to be upending uh, the economy for the vast majority of Americans, to say nothing of the rest of the world. So, uh, you know, I'm I'm now back to being an activist citizen and uh, part of the resistance. And everybody's like, yeah! Okay, the worst thing that could happen to the resistance is Hillary Clinton to be a part of it. 
I mean, she, she does have the resistance of a particularly vi- viral strain, virulent strain of syphilis. But aside from that, there's nothing going on that would, would remotely suggest uh, that she's going to help out the resistance in any way. She's trying to hijack a youth movement that she's just incapable of hijacking. And even people on her left are saying that she's totally full of it. But to talk about that, we're going to have to go over to dailywire.com and you're going to have to become a subscriber. $8 a month gets you a subscription to dailywire.com. Plus, if you want an annual subscription, you get a free copy of the Arroyo Fictional DVD. It's a, it's a movie set on the southern border, action western, all about ranchers trying to defend their land from drug cartels trying to use it as a thoroughfare. The Arroyo, Jeremy Boring's The Arroyo, go check it out by getting an annual subscription. Plus, if you get a subscription right now, annual or otherwise, then you can be part of the mailbag tomorrow. And we will do a live mailbag tomorrow. We'll take your questions live on air, which, of course, makes your life markedly better in every possible way. Dailywire.com. Or if you just want to listen at iTunes or SoundCloud, we always appreciate if you subscribe over there and make sure that you leave us a review. Uh, We always appreciate that as well. We are the largest conservative podcast in the nation. So while James Comey is out there defending his own activity and the left continues to blame James Comey, even the left is beginning to get kind of sick of this Hillary woe is me routine. David Axelrod, who's always been pretty critical of Hillary as an Obama acolyte, he says Hillary needs to try some introspection. Well, that may be true. The fact is that there's plenty of data to suggest that uh, she was in much better shape before Comey intervened uh, in October. Uh, and, and so she has a legitimate beef there, Jim Comey, for reasons of his own. And I think it was to try and protect his own uh, agency from charges of playing politics, ended up playing politics, and it hurt her. That said, uh, Jim Comey didn't say to the Clinton campaign, don't campaign in Michigan. You know, Jim Comey didn't say, don't go to Wisconsin once after the Democratic convention. And those are states that she lost by very, very narrow margins. Uh, And so there are a few things that if they had just done a little bit differently, uh, would have been, I think, decisive and would have allowed her to win despite Jim Comey. So a little more introspection, maybe we'll have to wait for the book, but a little more introspection is probably in order. Yeah, you would think, you would think, but that's not going to happen. Jake Tapper smacking Hillary too, and this is pretty harsh. Hillary Clinton today accepting full responsibility for the election loss, except for the part when she blamed Comey, Putin, WikiLeaks, misogyny, and the media. The lead starts right now. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's about accurate. So with all of this going on, with Hillary out there, with Comey out there, this is the best thing for Trump this week because Trump is still struggling to get through this, this health care bill. Now there's a new amendment that's being added that would basically pay for people who have pre-existing conditions and did not buy health insurance, not to uh, not to have to pay the fine. So basically, if you if you there there's a, a backdoor fine that if you want to reacquire health insurance, uh, even if you have pre-existing conditions, we're now going to pay the penalty for you not to do that. Which of course defeats the entire purpose of having a penalty in the first place. The whole purpose of penalizing people in order so that they uh, penalizing people who who were not covered and have pre-existing conditions. The reason to penalize them is because you want to encourage people to get coverage when they're healthy, not to wait until they're unhealthy and then to and then to get insurance because that bankrupts the insurance companies and we have to pay for it. So now the Republicans are adding in a new provision that would give $8 billion to such people to create new moral hazard. Again, it's just a mess. Trump care is just a mess. Maybe Republicans should vote for it just because it's better than what is there currently in terms of the Medicaid restructuring. That is basically the only thing to recommend this current version, uh, but it is not a whole hell of a lot better than the version that just got rejected. And it's clear that Republicans do not have the stomach to actually do a major overhaul of Obamacare or simply to repeal Obamacare wholesale, even as Obamacare is failing. So in Iowa, 
the last Obamacare insurer just dropped out in Iowa. There are no more. In 94 of 99 counties in Iowa, there is no Obamacare insurer available for anyone to take advantage of. So Obamacare has been a complete fail, and Republicans still can't get their act together. Meanwhile, President Trump is, is sort of standing in the background just shouting about how he wants health care and he wants it now without giving any details as to what it should look like. Here is Trump saying that it's time for members of Congress to vote on this thing. Thank you very much. And how's health care coming, folks? How's it doing? All right, we're moving along. Uh, I think it's time now, right? Right? They, they know it's time. Thank you. Thank you for being here, folks. Okay, what does that even mean? That is the most useless stuff ever. And, and here's the problem. When Trump tries to leverage his political power in order to push a legislative agenda, he's been unable to do it because he doesn't have any sort of real worldview, and this includes the wall. So Rush Limbaugh, I thought, did a great interview with Mike Pence the other day, Vice President Pence, and, uh, and Rush grilled Pence. He said, why are we voting Republican if you guys keep caving to Democrats? So it's obvious that, that Trump keeps caving to Democrats, Republicans keep caving to Democrats. This new budget deal funds all of the Democratic priorities without funding the border wall. And here's Rush grilling, grilling Pence. If this is what happens, Mr. Vice President, why vote Republican? What is the point of voting Republican if the Democrats are going to continue to win practically 95% of their objectives, such as in this last budget deal? Well, I, I look respectfully, Rush. I, I actually think this was, as the president said a little while ago, I think this was actually a clear win for the American people. If I'm the Democrats, $21 billion, $15 billion for defense that was not originally authorized, that's a small price to pay for continuing to fund refugee resettlement, continuing to fund Planned Parenthood, continuing to fund sanctuary cities, continuing to fund the EPA and not build the wall. The Democrats clearly think this is a big win, and they're confident they can block Trump's agenda after this spending bill for the rest of Trump's term. There isn't anything of the president's agenda in this budget, and people are beginning to ask ask, when's that going to happen? If you're going to shut it down in September, why not now? Yeah. If you complain about 60 votes today, why not go budget reconciliation for 51 votes and smoke them? And Pence has no good answer to this. Trump's answer to this is, it must be that my communication strategy is flawed. And while I am the greatest communicator in the world, I am so fabulous. It must be that Sean Spicer is doing a bad job. So instead, he sends out Mick Mulvaney to get real aggressive with the press. This is always Trump's tack on, on communications. Don't change the message, just change the messenger and have him yell a lot. So Mick Mulvaney, who used to be the most conservative, one of the most conservative members of Congress, now is the head of the Office of Management and Budget, he went out there in front of the press yesterday and basically started yelling at them. They wanted a shutdown. We know that. They were desperate to make this administration look like we couldn't function, like we couldn't govern. And we know that a large part of their base, especially their left-wing base, wanted a shutdown and certainly didn't want them to cut a deal with us. That's why I think you're seeing them crowing about their success, is in order to cover up the fact that they actually cut a deal with President Trump, and President Trump did a tremendous job. Okay, President Trump did not do a tremendous job. This deal is a horse crap load of garbage. It's just nonsense. And Mick Mulvaney's out there getting all pissed. Okay, I understand that th this is a basic problem. People on the right keep saying that we are jaded of politics, jaded of politics. We're jaded of all this. That's why we needed Trump, because Trump isn't a politician. We're so jaded, you know? We need somebody who's just not going to be part of this political gamesmanship. Somebody's just going to go in there and break things apart. It turns out you're not jaded. You're just angry. You're just angry. And Trump senses that, because Trump spent the entire election cycle making promises he can't keep, and a bunch of people believed them. A bunch of people believed those promises, not because they were cynical and jaded, but because they were angry. And there is a difference, okay? Angry without being cynical and cynical and jaded in politics, I think, is a good thing. It leads you to think, okay, smaller government, 
checks and balances, prevent people from having too much power. The founders were jaded. The founders thought the politicians sucked. They think the politicians suck more than you do. Okay, whatever, whoever you are, the, poli- the founders thought politicians suck more than you do. And the reason that we know this is because they put significant restraints on the ability of politicians to do anything, as opposed to modern America, where we want our politicians to do everything. But because Trump understands at a fundamental level that people who support him, and I'm talking about ardent supporters, not, not sort of people who held their nose and voted for him, but people who think that Trump is just the moon and that Trump is the greatest. What Trump understands is that you're not jaded. You are actually starry-eyed optimists about President Trump. And so if Trump just goes out there and keeps channeling anger, if he sends Sean Spicer out there to ram his podium into people, if he sends Mick Mulvaney out there to blather on about Democrats wanting a shutdown, it was Donald Trump who tweeted yesterday that maybe we need a good government shutdown. Yes, Democrats want a shutdown, but so should Republicans if the time is ripe. And Trump isn't wrong that a shutdown would be appropriate at this time. He's just wrong because he's not going to give it to us. So Mulvaney is sent out there to channel the anger, and then all of his people go, yeah, look at Mulvaney. And I was seeing this on Twitter all yesterday. So Mulvaney gets up there, and he says, you know, people are ripping on Trump for not building a wall. He's already building a wall. And here's what he looks like. This doesn't stop drugs and doesn't stop criminals from crossing the border. In fact, it doesn't stop hardly anything from crossing the border. This does. And that's what we got in this deal. And that's why we're so excited about the opportunities that we have to follow through on the president's promises to secure the southern border. So unless we have the other, uh, the other uh, picture, I'll take a couple questions. Border, how do you say that feds will keep drugs from coming over the border? They tunnel underneath the border. This is the border, and the, general, the general left. This is the wall, by the way, that DHS said they want. I've sat in the Oval Office of the president. We've talked about bricks and mortar. We've talked about concrete walls. This is what DHS wants. Why? Because it actually works better. You can tunnel under anything. Let me, I will answer your question, okay? You can see through this one. Okay? It's actually safer. Where we have this in place now, and we do, it's actually safer for our Border Patrol agents. There, there's, you can talk to the DHS about the details, but there's been a dramatic reduction in attacks on our Border Patrol agents where they can see through the wall because nobody's throwing anything over, this, over the top at them. This is what DHS wanted. It's also half of the cost, so we can build twice as much of it. This is a huge win for border security. Okay, it is not a huge win for border security. And he, he puts out, he, it's so funny, he says, Trump is building a wall right now. He's building a wall right this very instant. And here are the photos to prove it, right? And he points at those photos. Okay, can you rewind in the video a little bit just where he's pointing at the photo? There we go, that helps. Okay, so here's Mick Mulvaney pointing at the photo, right? There's the photo. Okay, now, here's a close-up of the photo that's, uh, that would be uh, on the... Uh, left-hand side of your screen. Uh, so here is, an, okay, do you notice something about this photo? Well, what you should notice about this photo is this photo is from January 25th, 2017. It's a Reuters photo. In other words, this is a picture of a wall that has nothing to do with Trump. It was taken by Reuters five days after Trump was inaugurated. It has nothing to do with Trump. It is a replacement for the crappy border fence. It is not building a new wall. It is not building the Trump wall. It does not add funding for the building of a Trump wall. The new budget actually prohibits new spending on the building of the Trump wall. Daniel Horowitz points this out, as I said yesterday, that the Trump wall could have been funded through discretionary funding and alternative means. The new, bu- the new budget explicitly rules that out. So, you know, I understand that there are people who want to believe Trump. I understand that you want to believe Trump. It is not believable that Trump is building a border wall when you point to a photo that was taken by Reuters three months ago when Trump had barely been president for five days and say this is the wall that Trump is building. It is the exact same photo. He is using a Reuters photo. That is just silly. Now, 
maybe the idea is that he's going to build a wall like this. He's going to build a wall just like this. Okay, but then you actually have to talk about when is he going to expand it across the 2,000-mile border? Because I keep hearing that it's going to be the entirety of the border. I tweeted this yesterday, and for those of you who think I'm not sincere about my border position, Ann Coulter retweeted it. She's pretty sincere about her border position. Okay, here is what I tweeted yesterday. I tweeted, I'm building a new house today. Just kidding. I'm actually patching a wall in my old house. But same difference, right? Okay, that's basically what Mick Mulvaney was saying yesterday, and he was hoping that his ire and his big hand movements and his yelling was going to was going to bamboozle you into believing that this was actually all happening. It is not actually all happening. Okay, and this and this is the bottom line. Hillary Clinton is back, and that's wonderful for Trump, but is not wonderful for conservatives. As I said about the media yesterday, in the Trump-Hillary fight, the losers are conservatives because all Trump has to be is just more than Hillary. That's all he has to be. And the, and the worse Trump gets in terms of governance, the more the specter of Hillary is going to grow. You watch. Over the next couple of years, if Trump doesn't get anything done major in terms of conservatism, people will just keep talking about how much more terrible Hillary is going to be. By the time four years comes around, Hillary was going to be the ghoulish devil child. Okay, Now, maybe all of that was true, but that does not make it better that Trump is not doing a particularly good job as president of the United States right now. Maybe that changes. Maybe that changes. But he's going to have to do better than he's doing right now. And no amount of Hillary talk is going to change that. Okay, time for some things I like, things I hate, and then we'll uh, do a little bit of Bible talk. So, things I like. I'm doing 20th century music this week, and 20th century classical music. Uh, and uh, we did Bartok on Monday, and we did uh, Holst on Tuesday. And today we will be doing some George Gershwin. But we're not going to do one of uh, Gershwin's most famous pieces. Uh, we're going to do one that's still famous, but not quite as famous. So everybody's heard American in Paris, which is a phenomenal piece. The movie's also great. I've recommended it on the show before. It's just beautiful, uh, the film. And it's replete with all of Gershwin's music, including the piece we're about to play. There's a scene where, uh, where somebody plays uh, the concerto in F. Um, American in Paris, people know about, obviously. Uh, people know about Rhapsody in Blue, which was in the Fantasia films. Uh, concerto in F is... Uh, I I may like it better than both of them. This is the this is the last movement of the Concerto in F, Piano Concerto in F, uh, and it is just fantastic. Here is George Gershwin's Concerto in F. <laughs> contracted by a conductor and director named Walter Damrosch. came out in 1925. It's about half an hour long. Well worth the listen. Gershwin, of course, is famous for marrying jazz and classical, for taking some... They say that, that Gershwin basically dressed up jazz and took her to the concert hall. Uh, and that's essentially what you hear here. This is less jazzy than some of his other compositions like Rhapsody in Blue or American in Paris, uh, but you can still hear the influence of jazz uh, in Concerto in F. Terrific piece. Uh, you should listen to the whole thing. Gershwin is one of the great... Uh, because he's so overplayed, he's one of these people, he's so overplayed that people 
people neglect how talented he is. That happens to certain composers where people forget how great Mozart and Beethoven are because you're hearing Mozart and Beethoven all the time. This is also true of Gershwin because people actually know Gershwin. People tend to underestimate just what a genius he was. Uh, and again, another tragically young death, George Gershwin, who died in his 30s, uh, just uh, an amazingly talented guy. Okay, other things that I like. This came out from The Onion yesterday. The Onion has been just on point lately. This video from The Onion was one of the funniest things that I've seen in recent memory. And it was called Trump Voter Feels Betrayed After Reading 800 Pages of Queer Theory. Uh, here we go. Pretty amazing. I voted for Donald Trump. I voted for Trump because I thought he'd create a better America for everyone. But after reading 800 or so pages on queer feminist theory, I realize now just how much I've been duped. You gotta understand, I come from a small steel town in Pennsylvania. If I had known the foundational text on intersectional theory, I would have never chanted, lock her up, lock her up, lock her up, lock her up. We were told Hillary Clinton was the enemy, but it's clear now that the true enemy is a patriarchal capitalistic society that maintains its ascendance by making powerful and ambitious women appear threatening, only to protect my status in a system purposefully designed to benefit cisette white men like myself. Jesus. <laughs> when Donald Trump said he would make America great again, it's obvious to me now that he was only <laughs> trying to play off my own complicity and comfort in an unequal social structure that disproportionately strips women and minorities, particularly trans and gender queer people of color, of their autonomy and seeks to subjugate them to an inverterate and intentionally antagonistic antocratic order. I get that now after I attended a gender-fluid non-binary poetry slam at Swarthmore. A couple of other guys from work attended it too, and now it's all we talk about on the line. I like Trump because I thought he tells it like it is. But you know who really tells it like it is? Judith Butler. Gender is not the culture as sex is to nature. Gender is also the discursive cultural means by which sexed nature or a natural sex is produced and established as predecursive prior to culture, a politically neutral surface on which culture acts. If I had just known that back in November, I would have never voted for Trump. God. How could I have been so stupid? <laughs> okay, I mean, it's, it's so good. It's so good. And the reason it's so good is because Democrats actually think this. Democrats actually think they're going to win over that blue-collar steel guy from Pennsylvania by telling him about how he is, is too gender binary for, for reality, about how he's discriminatory because he doesn't think that Caitlyn Jenner is a real woman. It's just, it's wonderful, it's great, and it just, again, it demonstrates the disconnect, and the fact the left can't see their own absurdity on this thing is really, truly incredible. Uh, well done, The Onion, just tremendous stuff. Okay, time for A Thing I Hate, and then we'll do uh, a, a short Bible talk. So, Things I Hate. Uh, there is this this outlet that got a bunch of people at the White House correspondence dinner to play Republican or The Handmaid's Tale. So yesterday we talked for about 45 seconds before we had to end the show about The Handmaid's Tale, uh, which is this awful series from Hulu all about how America is about to turn into a patriarchal dystopia in which men are using women only for procreation. Women aren't allowed to work and women have their bank accounts taken away from them and suddenly men aren't having their credit cards 
overrun. Um, but in any case, uh, The Handmaid's Tale uh, is uh, it's not a good series. I've watched a bit of it. It's not any good, and it's also silly. But the left is obsessed with The Handmaid's Tale. We need more woke takes on The Handmaid's Tale is basically the idea of the left because the most important thing that everybody has to know is that America is this close to becoming Saudi Arabia. But we can't say that about Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia is actually a great place with lots of multiculturalism. But America is about to become Saudi Arabia because Christians are bad. So Samantha B. right before she had her Not the White House Correspondence Dinner this weekend, this outlet called Refinery29 asked a few questions on the purple carpet, and they started asking all these various members of the media, Republican or The Handmaid's Tale? So there were quotes from Trump and Pence juxtaposed with quotes from The Handmaid's Tale, and you were supposed to be able to tell which one was which. I'm here on the purple carpet for Not the White House Correspondence Dinner. We're going to play a little game. Can these people really tell the difference between something a Republican said and something that came from the dystopian novel that we all read in high school but didn't think would become real life? A Handmaid's Tale. Let's find out. Republican or Handmaid's Tale? Okay. I understand that women feel like it is their body. I call them a host. And you know when you enter into a relationship, you're going to be that host. Republican or Handmaid's Tale? I think that's a Republican. That is from Margaret Atwood's The Handmaid's Tale. Republican. 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 Oh, Republican. Republican. That was Republican Oklahoma Representative Justin Humphrey. Justin. Wait, what's his name? Justin Humphrey. Oh, Justin. I remember that. Yep, yep. Republican or Handmaid's Tale? Societal collapse was always brought about following the advent of the deterioration of marriage and family. Republican or Handmaid's Tale? Republican. You might go with Republican. Republican. Handmaid's Tale. That sounds Republican to me. Republican. Republican. Republican Mike Pence. What is happening? As soon as I'm excited about winning, I realize we all lose. All of us. Republican or Handmaid's Tale? We're two-legged wombs, that's all. Just sacred vessels. Republican or Handmaid's Tale? Handmaid's Tale. You could go either way, but I'm going to go with Handmaid's Tale. That sounds like Republican as well. Republican. That is the Handmaid's Tale. Handmaid's Tale. Handmaid's Tale! I really know. So they, they go on like this. Uh, never at any point would they ask, okay, Brave New World or Democrat? Because you could easily do the exact same thing with Brave New World and Democrat talking about how sex for pleasure is the only important thing in life and there should be no deeper meaning to life. Uh, it, it's, it's actually very easy to play this game when you take people out of context and play this game. The, the quote they actually give from Pence there, that society started to decline with the, with the destruction of marriage and family. That is 100% true, and that has nothing to do with The Handmaid's Tale, obviously. That is eminently and obviously true based on the fact that intergenerational poverty is deeply linked to single motherhood, and single motherhood started and became prevalent with the advent of the welfare state in the 1960s. What Penn said there, I love when they they get all shocked about what Penn said there. Nothing Penn said there is actually shocking. That first quote about women being the host for a child or whatever— that's just silly language, and it's ridiculous language, but they had to go all the way to like some Oklahoma state representative to find it. These are the easiest games to play, and it's a cheap parlor trick. And we'll have to play this cheap parlor trick on the street one day. We'll actually have to do a segment that's exactly the reverse of this and see how Democrats like it, because it is obvious that Democrats, you can play this game either way. It's just, again, this notion that we're on the verge of The Handmaid's Tale because you can take somebody out of context and then pretend that it was The Handmaid's Tale it's just silliness. It's like saying we're on the verge of Brave New World because the Democrats are a bunch of abortion-minded fanatics. Okay, time for some Bible talk. So, 
This week, uh, in, in the Jewish canon, uh, we read the, the Parsha, it's Achare Kedoshim. We read a different part of the, of the Bible every week. This part comes from Leviticus. And uh, in this part of Leviticus, it talks about the institution of Yom Kippur, which is the holiest day in the Jewish calendar. Uh, and it says in Leviticus 16, 29 through 31, All this shall be as an eternal statute for you. In the seventh month, on the tenth of the month, you shall afflict yourselves. You shall not do any work, neither the native nor the stranger who dwells among you. For on this day, he shall effect atonement for you to cleanse you before the Lord. You shall be cleansed from all your sins. It's a Sabbath, a Sabbath of rest of you, and you shall afflict yourselves. It's an eternal statute. So afflict yourselves, meaning that you're supposed to fast. So the question becomes, and this is just a general question, I think, for everyone. What is the use of fasting and prayer? Why are these things useful? Because we all have this sort of childish notion that God is a gumball machine, that if we just ask God for things, that God is going to grant them to us, that we stick the quarter in, we pull the lever, and boom, a gumball comes out. But in real life, that's not how it works. We pray for things all the time that don't actually happen. When they do happen, we're grateful. But the idea that we are sort of in control of God is actually a rather blasphemous one. So what is the point of fasting and prayer? Well, I think that the the point of fasting and prayer uh, and the point more broadly of the idea that God is not a gumball machine, that you can't just do things God wants and get what you want out of it. The reason for this is obviously that God wants to encourage the notion of free will. God wants to make clear to you that your choices matter in the world, and the way that your choices matter is because there's not a clear relationship between cause and effect. He wants you to act because it's the right thing to do. He doesn't want you to act just because you expect a reward. In fact, they've done social science experiments on children where they tell children, we want you to draw, and if you draw really well, we'll give you a candy. And then they tell kids, we want you to draw just for fun. And then afterward, they say, okay, we'll give you, here's a candy. You did a great job drawing. They bring them back in three weeks. And when they ask the kids who were basically paid to draw to draw, the kids immediately say, where's my candy? They want to be paid up front. The kids who were just rewarded for doing something that they thought was fun and interesting, they sit down and they'll draw without any sort of encouragement. So that's sort of what God is thinking with regard to humanity, which is you don't have to, I'm not going to reward you for every good thing that you do in obvious real time, because then you're going to be doing it for the reward. You're not going to be doing it just in terms of free will. And that makes you a lesser person. It makes you a lesser person not to have the autonomy to be able to choose good things yourself. And the purpose of prayer and the purpose of fasting when it comes to Yom Kippur, the purpose of doing anything in the world that you think God commanded you to do was to, in, was to encourage in you the value of habit, encourage in you the notion that you're going to train yourself, you're going to train yourself to do things that are good and so that you so that you are used to doing it and that's what fasting and prayer do you do it often you do it frequently and you're used to doing it but also to still at the same time grant you the ability for autonomy and mastery and purpose the times in our life when we are happiest is when we are feeling those three things autonomy mastery and purpose that's called flow according to certain psychotherapists and psychologists and social scientists autonomy uh, autonor, uh, autonomy meaning you get to pick your own choices mastery meaning you feel that you're an expert at what you're doing and purpose meaning that what you're doing has some sort of purpose to it that's what God God is intending to give you the ability to find autonomy, mastery, and purpose, but granting you the training so that you have good habits that allow you to achieve the flow necessary to have a fulfilling life. I know that moved a little bit fast, but listen to it slower again. It actually is sort of meaningful. Uh, We will be back here tomorrow with the mailbag and a lot more going on. This is The Ben Shapiro Show. We'll get to more on this in just one second first. 
Pure Talk believes in American values, and that free should mean, you know, like free. So when you switch to Pure Talk today, you'll get a free Samsung 5G smartphone. There's no four-line requirement, no activation fee, just a free Samsung that's built to last with a rugged screen, quick-charging battery, and top-tier data security. Qualifying plans start at just 35 bucks a month for unlimited talk, text, 15 gigs of data, and a mobile hotspot. Pure Talk gives you phenomenal coverage on America's most dependable 5G network. It's the same coverage you know and love, but for half the price of the other guys. The average family saves almost $1,000 a year. So I challenge you to choose a company that actually doesn't hate your guts and shares your values. Let Pure Talk's expert U.S. customer service team help you make the switch today. Go to puretalk.com slash Shapiro to claim your eligibility for your free brand new Samsung 5G smartphone and start saving on wireless today. Again, go to puretalk.com slash Shapiro to switch to my cell phone company. I've been using them for years. They're fantastic. You'll love them as well. Go to puretalk.com slash Shapiro and claim your eligibility on that free brand new Samsung 5G smartphone. Start saving. <laughs> 